Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Psalms this morning, looking at Psalm 83, as we just heard read. My sermon this morning is entitled, That They May Know. Let's begin this morning by revisiting the idea of imprecatory psalms, imprecatory psalms. And yes, we are revisiting that idea. We've talked about it before. Uh, Several times over the past few summers, we have worked through the book of Psalms and encountered these Psalms that are imprecatory. Now, some of you are already tracking with you, with me, and others will be saying, what on earth is Pastor Jude talking about? What is imprecatory? What is an imprecatory Psalm? And so let's review. An imprecation is a curse that invokes a misfortune, a negative consequence, some adversity upon someone else. Imprecatory psalms are those in which the author imprecates. That is, he calls down calamity or destruction or God's anger or God's judgment on his enemies. And these psalms are fairly common in the Psalter. The major imprecatory psalms are often considered to be Psalm 5, 10, 17, 35, 58, 59, 69, 70, 79, 83, 109, 129, 137, and 140. They are throughout the book of Psalms. Let me give you some examples from Psalm 510. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Psalm 17, 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Psalm 58, verses 6 through 8. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. These are serious words in the imprecatory psalms. These psalms can broadly be grouped into three categories, these imprecatory psalms. One, psalms that proclaim an imprecation against a societal enemy. Two, psalms that raise an imprecation against a nation or community, such as the psalm that we consider today. And three, psalms that make an imprecation against a personal enemy. Now, with hopefully New Testament morality entrenched in our minds, and perhaps some misguided ethical residue from our current culture, these imprecatory psalms can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. So before we begin evaluating Psalm 83, let me share with you 10 truths about imprecatory psalms, 10 truths that I have shared previously in our journey through the book of Psalms. These 10 truths come from an article by pastor, theologian, and author Sam Storms. One, God's word regularly pronounces imprecations against God's people for their unfaithfulness. This isn't a phenomenon directed solely at unbelievers. Two, 
The people being cursed are not enemies over trivial matters. These aren't directed at people who don't return their shopping carts to the proper corral. These prayers are not expressions of personal vengeance. The Bible forbids personal vengeance seeking. Four, imprecations are human prayers based on divine promises. Their foundation is not the feelings or the wishes of humans. Rather, they reflect what God has revealed in his word concerning evil. Five, imprecations are expressions provoked by the horror of sin. Sin and evil should elicit a sense of revulsion in God's people, and imprecations are one God-directed means of processing. Six, as we heard a few moments ago, these curses are in poetic form and can often imply extravagant and vigorous expressions and thus are somewhat unclear. And therefore, we should leave the fulfillment of these prayers to God. We must leave room for figurative language and trust God to do as he sees fit. Seven, the motivation behind such prayers is zeal for God's righteousness, for God's honor, for God's reputation, and as we sang, for the triumph of God's kingdom. This is not a method of personal one-upmanship in which we try to elevate ourselves over others. In most cases, these prayers for divine judgment come only after extended efforts on the part of the psalmist to call the enemies of God to repentance. God is patient and long-suffering, and we should be too. This isn't the first step in conflict resolution. Nine, at a minimum, Jesus and Paul promoted the praying of imprecatory prayers, which teaches us that this isn't just something to be left in the Old Testament. And 10, we must reconcile all the words of Scripture as we navigate imprecatory psalms. Imprecation, even those garnered directly from Scripture, must take into consideration the commands that we have to love our enemies and to pray for them. I think those 10 truths are helpful as we consider Psalm 83. And with all of this in mind, let's proceed with caution and wisdom, considering these imprecatory passages, particularly Psalm 83, with a commitment, a commitment to carefully understand them in their original meaning and then making wise application for today. The imprecatory Psalms are prayers calling on God to remedy injustices and evil which neither us as individuals nor the state are competent to remedy. These are already beyond us. These are issues that are beyond us. And so we look to God and we rely on the Spirit and we proceed with humility. So let us consider the lament of Psalm 83 and the imprecations contained therein. Point number one, no God in judgment. Well, yes, you just heard it. Psalm 83 is a lament. It follows the form of lament that we have worked with several times this summer already. The psalmist turns to God in his pain. He describes the suffering that is being experienced through godly complaints. He petitions God 
to remedy the situation and ultimately trust God. Psalm 83 is a lament looking for God to cause the enemy of God's people to know him in judgment. The psalmist turns to God twice in the opening verse with this familiar refrain, O God. And this turn to God contains a repeated plea that God would do something. Do something to remedy this situation. Do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still. These negatively framed requests are looking for God to act. Do not remain silent. Do not remain static. The psalmist calls. God's people using the psalm call on God. They turn to him and ask him to act. Why do they turn to God with the desire that he act? The godly complaining of verses two to eight paint the picture of the crisis that is being faced a crisis that results from the misdeeds of Israel's enemies. Israel's enemies are said in this psalm to be in a state of frenzied arrogance. They make an uproar, which is the psalmist's poetic way of saying they have become a tumultuous mob looking to commit evil. These are people who hate God. And their arrogance is described by saying they have raised their head. And that phrase, raising their head, isn't just describing their pride, but, but also their hostility. Further, these enemies of God's people, and therefore enemies of God's, are plotting and planning against God's chosen one. They craft evil by consulting and conspiring, and even covenanting to do God and his people harm. These nations and people groups have taken up that proverb that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They have found agreement in their mutual adversary. They are unified against God and against God's people. It's against God's treasured people, the psalm says, that they cry out in unison, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Now, it's not just the conduct of their enemies that fills the complaint of the psalmist and of God's people as they use this psalm. They also use this complaining time to identify the culprits. God's psalmist begins by pointing his finger at the arch enemies from the time of the patriarchs, the people of Edom. These people were descendants of Esau, and they are grouped together as enemies of God with the descendants of Ishmael, the descendants of Lot, and the descendants of Hagar. And added to this axis of evil are the people from Gabal and Ammon and Tyre and Philistia. And even the Assyrians are accused. They're designated in verse 8 with the name Asher. Now there is no known historical event in which all of these people were at one time allied against God's people. And so the psalmist is likely listing various groups over the course of history who were perennial threats to Israel, who shared the common goal of Israel's extinction. The complaint lays out the evil actors, and it lays out their evil deeds. Now, having brought the grievance to God. 
the lament moves now to ask specifically for help. And it's where the psalmist asks for help that we find the imprecations. That's where he calls down God's judgment on his enemies. The first imprecation essentially amounts to asking God to do to their enemies what he did to Israel's enemies in the time of the judges. Asking God to do them as you did to Midian recalls the story of Gideon. In the time of Gideon, the Midianites oppressed Israel. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And so the Lord raised up Gideon to deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Do you remember the story? Gideon recruited an army of 32,000 men, which the Lord reduced to 300. And then Gideon and his small army attacked the Midianite camp at night And through God's miraculous intervention, the Midianites fled. They fled in confusion. They were pursued by Gideon and his army until they were utterly defeated. That's what the psalmist is asking for. Do to my enemies like you did to Gideon's enemies. The next petition makes reference to Sisera and Jabin, asking God to do as he did back then. This evokes the memory of Deborah and Barak's defeat of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were led by Sisera and ruled by Jabin. And through God's empowerment, they were utterly defeated. That's what the psalmist is looking for. Do to my enemies what you did to Deborah and Barak's enemies. And then he returns again to the defeat of the Midianites, mentioning their rulers, Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmanah. God fought for his people in the time of the judges, and they ask him, do the same thing today. Defeat our enemies. Destroy them. Now, even if some of us were unfamiliar with these historical accounts of God's protection and God's provision for his people, the psalmist makes his desires clear in the next round of imprecations. Having asked the Lord to make their enemies like dung in verse 10, The request now is to make them like dust and chaff that is blown away and scattered by the wind, to make them like a forest that is consumed by a blazing fire. The psalm calls for God's vengeance, requesting that you, O my God, might pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. And then the psalmist just piles on the imprecations. Fill their faces with shame. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. This is what the psalmist calls for. This is the imprecation he makes. Pursue them, terrify them, shame them, dismay them, disgrace them, and ultimately destroy them. Now the lament finishes according to the formula we have considered Its final words are evidence of a profound trust in God. The psalmist prays, come against our enemies in judgment that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is similar to the last lament we looked at where the glory of the Lord was the underlying motivation for the turn to God and the complaining to God, the asking of God and the trusting in God. 
Through this corporate lament, the, the psalmist looks for Israel's enemies to know God in judgment. And that's a biblical desire, and it's a biblical request. But as new covenant believers, we must also desire and request that our enemies know God not only in judgment, but that they know him in grace. And that's only possible through Jesus Christ. Point number two, know God in grace. Now, before we get to an application wherein we can ask ourselves, what does it look like for God's people of the new covenant to make imprecatory prayers, let us first take a few moments to consider one way that Psalm 83 points to Christ and points to the grace of God. Consider the imprecations of Psalm 83. Pursue them. Terrify them, shame them, dismay them, disgrace them, and destroy them. As I considered those imprecations, those requests for God's judgment to come, it occurred to me that in Christ's suffering and death on the cross, all of these curses that were in this psalm intended against the enemies of God in the Old Testament were experienced by the Son. In the New Testament, in fact, we could say carefully and with a nuanced understanding that what God's people asked of him in the old covenant to do to their enemies, God did to his own son in the new covenant for his enemies. Let me say that again. What God's people asked of him in the old covenant to do to their enemies, God did to his own son in the new covenant for his enemies. If we summarize the imprecations of Psalm 83, we could say that God's people looked for God to save them by shaming and destroying their enemies. And one way of speaking about the gospel is to say that God ordained that his own son might be shamed and destroyed in order to save his enemies. Let's unpack that a bit. First of all, all sinners, meaning all humanity, in God's word are considered to be God's enemies. Paul declares in Ephesians 2, verse 3, that unbelievers, which all of us were at one time, unbelievers are by nature children of wrath. And James, in four, chapter 4, verse 4, says that aligning oneself with the world, that was all of us at one time, aligning ourselves with the world reveals people to be enemies of God. And don't forget, it was while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we, while we were still children of wrath, it was then, as enemies, that Christ died for us, according to Romans 5, verse 8. So what God did in the gospel, he did for his enemies. Further, we must carefully consider that God ordained what happened to Christ. And that is why I say that what the psalmist asked God to do 
to Israel's enemies in the old covenant, God did to his own son in the new covenant for his enemies. Consider Peter in Acts 2, verse 23. What he says makes it plain. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was the plan of God that Christ would fall under judgment for sin, for our sin, not his own. And Isaiah prophesied this many years before when with the mind-blowing words he prophesied prophesied that Jesus would be smitten by God and that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And finally, that it was the will of the Lord to crush his son. That's Isaiah 53. God did to Jesus what the psalmist in Psalm 83 asked him to do to Israel's enemies. And what God did, understand, not in a blamable way, not in a culpable way, not in an immoral way, what God did was that he ordained that his son would be shamed and destroyed. As the psalmist cried out in God to Psalm 83 about his enemies, let them perish Jesus understood that he himself would perish at the cross. This is made clear in Luke 13, 33. When Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem, he said, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He knew this is what he would face, and he faced it willingly. And brothers and sisters, this is how we found salvation. Unbeliever, if you're here today, this is where salvation is found. We are saved because what Israel prayed upon its enemies in the old covenant, God ordained for his son in the new covenant. In the shame and in the disgrace of his suffering and death and in his perishing for sinners, Christ accomplished salvation. Now keep in mind, it was not only through shame and death that Jesus saves. It's not only shame and death that saves us. No, the greatest reversal in the history of the world, when God raised Jesus from the dead, And through his resurrection, reverse the suffering, reverse the shame, and reverse the death that Jesus had experienced, and put all those things on the the devil. Colossians 2.15, listen to what it says. It says that through death and the resurrection of his son, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame triumphing over them in him, in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us allow Psalm 83 to cause us to marvel at the gracious God we have. Let's let 83 cause us to 
marvel at our glorious Savior. Let us be moved to worship God who loved us, who loved his chosen ones so much that he would ordain for his only son what his Old Testament people thought only appropriate for the enemies of God. Let's glory in a Savior who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human, human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Psalm 83 laments, that God's enemies would know God through judgment, that they would experience shame and disgrace and death, and yet the gospel proclaims that God's enemies are saved through Jesus' experience of shame and death on the cross, and that while we were still enemies of God, we could know God, not in judgment, but in grace. The psalmist wants God's enemies to know God in judgment. The gospel calls God's enemies to know him in grace. Now with that glorious foundation, let us move on to the last section of this sermon and consider how we can apply these imprecatory laments Specifically, the imprecatory lament of Psalm 83 in our own lives. Point number three, know God in judgment and grace. I'll suggest to you this morning that new covenant believers look for God's enemies to know him in judgment and in grace. Now, we can apply this text by asking ourselves three questions. One, should Christians pray imprecatory prayers? Two, who should imprecatory prayers be directed at? And three, how should we pray imprecations? Now, the second and third questions indicate that the answer to the first question is yes. Should Christians pray imprecatory prayers? I believe the answer to that question is yes. There are three reasons why I think so. First, as we are, I hope, well aware, imprecatory prayers occur in the Psalms. Psalm 5, Psalm 10, 17, 35, 58, 59, 69, 70, 79, 83, 109, 129, 137, and 40. And other imprecations in many other Psalms are present. They're just not labeled imprecatory Psalms. And we know that the Psalter is our manual for prayer. It's an instruction manual. And so that's one reason I think we should pray imprecatory prayers. Second, I think we should pray imprecatory prayers because Jesus did. In Matthew 23, Jesus invoked a woe. In fact, he invoked seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe means grief anguish, affliction, wretchedness, calamity, or trouble. And when Jesus used it in regards to the Pharisees and the scribes, it wasn't an exclamation. It was a declaration. A declaration of God's judgment against the Pharisees and against the scribes. And so Jesus did this. 
And third, the final reason I think Christians should pray in precatory prayers is that the New Testament includes them. 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Revelation 6.10, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So I think there's room in the prayer lives of believers to pray in precatory prayers. That being the case, who should imprecatory prayers be directed at? Now, I think imprecatory prayers should be reserved for particularly heinous evil that we encounter in this world. I think John Calvin's comments on Psalm 58, which was an imprecatory psalm, I think they're helpful. In Calvin's commentary in the Psalms, he suggests that David writes in precatory Psalms against extremely evil people. And the way Calvin differentiates these targets of imprecations from others is interesting. This is what Calvin writes. He says, the stain of original sin cleaves to the whole human family without exception. But experience proves that some are characterized by modesty and decency of outward deportment, that others are wicked, yet at the same time within bounds of moderation, while a third class are so depraved in disposition as to be intolerable members of society. Now, it is this excessive wickedness too marked to escape detestation, even amidst the general corruption of mankind. It is to this excessive wickedness which David ascribes to his enemies. He stigmatizes them as monsters of iniquity. Now, so I say this. I think specific and detailed imprecatory prayers should by and large be reserved for what Calvin calls monsters of iniquity. Again, imprecations are not for the person with too many items in the express lane at the grocery store. It's not for the person who doesn't signal when they change lanes. No, imprecations should be reserved for extreme evil. And so where do you see this sort of evil in society? What issues raise to this level of concern in our time? Let me list a few for you, certainly not exhaustive. But I think evil, heinous to the degree that specific and detailed imprecatory prayers might be appropriate. I think when we see serious poverty directly caused by deliberate and intentional injustice, this rises to the level of evil that these sort of psalms deal with. I think the whole abortion complex that knowingly and brazenly kills unborn children rises to this level of evil. 
I think the human trafficking industry, which treats primarily women and children as commodities to be bought and sold and used, rises to this level of evil. And I think many aspects of the human sexuality and gender identity activism, particularly in regards to children, rises to this level of evil. I think some of these evils, and there are others, rise to the level of monstrosity that a specific and detailed imprecatory prayer could be, could be employed. Now, if I am correct in the answers to my first two questions, we should pray imprecatory prayers, and there are evils in this world that warrant us to do so, then our application of Psalm 83 can finish with the third and final question, how should we pray imprecations? And what I'm gonna suggest to you now, I think, is a wise and safe way to go forward. I would be hesitant to suggest that you write out a psalm of imprecation, though I don't think it's forbidden, and it may be appropriate. But I think we should pray imprecations, and and this is how I think we should do them. First of all, I think we should do them with those 10 truths I mentioned earlier in mind. Let me remind you again today of them. God's word regularly pronounces imprecations against God's people for unfaithfulness. Keep that in mind as you consider praying an imprecation. Two, the people who are being cursed are not enemies over trivial matters. Three, these are not prayers of personal vengeance. Four, they are prayers based on divine promises. Five, they are expressions provoked by the horror of sin. Six, in the Bible they are in poetic form, therefore we leave the fulfillment to God. Seven, the motivation behind such prayers is a zeal for God's righteousness, his honor, his reputation, and the triumph of his kingdom. Eight, these should likely come after extended time of prayer that these people repent. Nine, at a minimum, we know that Jesus and Paul prayed imprecatory prayers. And 10, we must reconcile all the words of Scripture. We must be, remember if we're going to pray imprecations that we're also called to love our enemies and to pray for them. So I suggest to you that we pray imprecations by using those given to us in the New Testament. Perhaps the most useful and prudent imprecatory prayer to use is the one found in the Lord's Prayer. Yes, an imprecation in the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Understand this, the coming of God's kingdom entails judgment. The will of God being done includes judgment. Keeping our imprecatory prayers somewhat vague but using the words of scripture, I think will help us from getting lost in the weeds as we ask God's judgment to come to bear. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Another imprecatory New Testament prayer is the Aramaic word Maranatha. Maranatha, it's an imprecation. 
It means come, Lord Jesus, in most cases. Understand this. When Jesus returns, he will be coming with salvation and with judgment. Revelation 19, 11, 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10, Paul tells the Thessalonians that he prays for them in their suffering. He prays that God might pour affliction on those who are afflicting the Thessalonians and that he might grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Brothers and sisters, a prayer for the return of Christ, a good prayer for all believers, an appropriate prayer for all believers, a prayer for Christ's return is a prayer of imprecation. It's not only that, but it certainly is that. Finally, the last suggestion I have in regards to Christians praying imprecatory prayers is that we should also constantly be praying for the salvation of God's enemies, that we should pray for their salvation through their repentance and faith in Jesus. We should desire that they know God in grace. Praying for sinners to repent and for sinners to believe is a preemptive prayer that demonstrates that we can love and pray for our enemies. And it also suitably leaves it to God's sovereign discretion what will happen to evil people. We should pray that they may know him in grace as well as in judgment. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, know that our prayer for you is that you will acknowledge your sin and that you will understand that sinners are separated from God and that sinners face judgment for their sin. We pray that you will see this predicament that you are in. And we pray that you will look to Jesus who saves us from our sin and saves us from the judgment of sin through his death on, his, on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We pray that you will believe in Jesus, that you will entrust yourself to his work of salvation, that you will surrender your life to God in Jesus. And we pray that you do this before he returns. Because when he returns, he will do so to save his people 
and to bring judgment on those who aren't. And so we pray, unbeliever, that you will know God in grace, lest you know him in judgment. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 83. We thank you for another lament that helps us to understand how we navigate pain and difficulties and trials. And we've considered some challenging things this morning, Father. My prayer would, that, would be that you, by your spirit, would help us to understand these things to help us to apply them wisely. But most of all, God, I pray that you by your spirit would cause us to desire that your enemies would know you in grace, that they would know you through Jesus Christ, that they would come to believe, to repent of their sins, to entrust themselves to you through your son who died and rose again. That is our prayer. But we know you're sovereign. And barring that, Father God, we do cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come to save us and come to judge. We pray that in his name. Amen.